0: Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. I have gotten to know Danny Black. He's one of the co-hosts on Hobby Hotline now. I had dinner with him and uh, several other uh, distinguished uh, Hobby Hotline people at the National uh, or, uh, later uh, earlier uh, this this year in late summer, and uh, got to know him a little bit. We promised to be on each other's podcasts. So this is his uh, origin story. Uh, he's a sports Balt. And, uh, so obviously Baltimore guy as comes up and, uh, you know, just again, he's, he's a former radio guy. So he certainly has, uh, communication skills. So, uh, thanks, Danny and thanks sponsors, Tops, Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Compsey.com and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So, uh, if you're interested in being interviewed for the show, Uh, I think Danny and I probably mutually uh, initiated, but if you have uh, some interest in something that ought to be talked about and you want to be somebody talking about it, just uh, email me at drjamesbeckett at gmail.com. So thanks, Danny. Thanks, listeners. Here is the origin story for Danny Black. Danny, welcome to the show. You position yourself where you're helpful with people wanting your services to help them buy or sell their stuff. But to do that, you had to have a hobby journey that had enough stops along the way to gain the understanding, to gain the trust of the people that you work with. So how did you get started and how did you find yourself doing what you're doing now? And welcome to the show.
1: First of all, thank you very much for having me. One of my friends best described me as a cross between a cyberger and George Costanza. I think a little bit of everything along the way has definitely led to where I am now. I was born into baseball. I was reading statistics before I was reading books. I remember making collages out of the American League all-star team by cutting out the sporting news pictures and trying to put all the players together. Then you get the cards to match them up because you only wanted the all-stars. If I didn't have Julio Franco, it wasn't worth it. I just built from there. When I found out you could actually go to these things called card shows, and this is probably the early to mid-90s. I started going to shows. I was able to make enough money to convince my parents to drive me to the next one. And that built for a couple of years. Back then, we were reading Beckett Magazine for all of our prices. And every show, we would adjust a little bit on the up and down arrows. But it was the junk wax and Ken Griffey error. So it was, did I have 100 Ken Griffey's or did the other guy have 110 Ken Griffey's?
0: <laughs> Are you an art guy or a numbers guy? Are you very visual or very analytical?
1: I've learned to be a little bit of both. I don't think naturally I'm good at either one. I think I've been around really smart people that I've learned from, and I think my biggest strength is maybe to be a sponge. But later in life, I actually worked at an art gallery and I married an artist. So I was given a perspective, one that I now appreciate in the card world that I didn't originally. I think originally I was more of a sports fan numbers game to me. Still to this day, I have that very part of my business. If I'm helping out a client or a company, it's very analytical. Uh, On the other hand, if I have to make a recommendation on a card to buy, I might simply be honest and say, listen, the 52 tops or 49 leaf is going to hold more visual appeal long-term than 62 tops. And that's both a business and an aesthetic decision. So a little bit of both.
0: I was wondering if you didn't maybe consider that your primary skill was communicating But you're a really good communicator.
1: You think that's fair? I'm not good at taking a compliment. Yes, I talk a lot and people seem to listen. So I guess if I connect those two.
0: You got to relate. If you're going to help people, you've got to be a good listener. And then you've got to hold forth. of here's what I think we ought to do. And in a persuasive way.
1: I think we're all humbled at a point in life. I worked in Major League Baseball. When I left, I got a job to help support my family, my children. And nothing's more important than that. It was a fantastic opportunity. And it gave me a position to understand business for a lot of years and to learn that side of the world. But ultimately, it was still sales. It was still communication. It was still networking. My mother's an entrepreneur by nature. Networking for us was dinner table conversation. So I parlayed that into high school radio and TV and have done radio in Baltimore. And I love being a part of Hobby Hotline just to be able to talk.
0: You're years away were you completely aware where you turned the sports business and the hobby business into a side gig? Or were you away enough that you really appreciated it when you jumped back in more full time?
1: I think I had more sorrow that I was out of it. And so I started calling some old clients and trying to actually see if they were interested in playing with me. I did want to get my toe back in the water, but it took a couple of years till I was ready to make the full leap. A lot of people who lived through that period of time got hit hard. And my whole personal collection was actually stolen out of my car coming back from a show. Everything I owned and quick lesson about insurance and proper coverage, everybody. But yeah, I lost everything. And so that gave me a real kind of reset. Am I going to start building from scratch with essentially no funding? Uh, or am I going to look to college and a career? And that's why I worked in baseball, to be honest with you. I think I was still searching for a way back to connect to cards. And I think that's why I ended up working in sports.
0: I think that gave you a good perspective, but it's not usually a career that people do very well financially. If you're not a player, if you're not in the dugout, the reason is I think a lot of people would work for free or they claim they would. And so they don't have to pay big bucks when these various sports leagues and teams are playing.
1: You're completely correct. It sounds like my mother-in-law called you. Yeah.
0: What's your revenue model now? Because I don't think you have a boss.
1: I don't. I think you're
0: independent. Are you mainly helping people sell their stuff and taking a percentage or just curious?
1: So there's two different sides to what I do mainly. I do consult with companies in the hobby industry. Right now, I'm consulting with a couple great companies, Magpie and Center Stage. So I'll help them on a back-end consulting side that won't have a public-facing view for me necessarily. And that's certainly part of my revenue model. Then the other side is, yeah, I do still like to broker in the Baltimore area, I know pretty well. And I still like to get my hands dirty. I still like going through boxes of cards, spending all day at somebody's house, going through cards in a basement. might not be financially my best day, but it is still more fun than I have most days.
0: High and center stage, they're coming at things differently. But I think the big challenge for both of those very well-meaning and interesting services is how to charge. And how to price. I'm the price guide guy, but when I was doing my own stuff, you don't look at a guide. You have to decide if it's too high, that's bad. If it's too low, that's bad. So what's the sweet spots for both of those? To really hit success, they've got to price it just right. And I think that's really tricky for both of those
1: for different reasons. I'm gonna agree with you and say that I think it's even a larger question. Look what the grading companies are doing right now in pricing. I think it's an industry-wide fight right now for everybody to get into their own ecosystem. I think everybody wants loyal base everybody's trying to attract the data and the numbers and the users because i think everybody's going to flock to their own team at some point and you're going to have your collection somewhere with somebody and i think everybody wants those users sa and sgc and bgs are all dropping their prices and turnaround times are getting better Because they want a loyal base. They don't want people sending their cards to three or four companies.
0: All along, Danny, I've been thinking that the vaults that everybody's starting, that's their lost leader to get them in. But now with the decrease in grading, it's inconceivable to me that grading could be the lost leader. (laughs) Because once they grade the card, it's there on premises. And if it's a big card, they could leave it there. And that larger entity could try to help you sell it. But does that cut you out of it? I thought you had the stuff. What well, in the vault? You're advising what they should do
1: with my consulting and the companies I'm working with. They each ask me to do separate roles. With one of the companies, I'm playing much more of a hobby card knowledge role, specifically on vintage cards, and just adding some knowledge to a great technical team. The other situation, I'm more of a marketing to the hobby and communication side. So I can play different roles in different consulting positions. Now, when I deal with my private clients, absolutely, we end up talking ecosystems. That's what I
0: was referring to. But
1: it it crosses over because not just the companies I work with, but so many of the other companies that are popping up. These are fantastically smart people. And a lot of them were at Industry Summit. I think everybody's trying to find an ecosystem to be a part of. I think you can see those growing one by one. That's where it crosses over then into the private collector. Now I need to say to them, listen, Are we looking at tax advantages? Are we looking at a long-term investment? Your fees may be down the road for withdrawal. So do you want to pay up front and put it in a safety deposit box? Or do you want to not deal with the insurance and the benefits of buying tax-free and storage? Those definitely come up with the private clients. To be honest with you, I'm not sure who's going to come out ahead. And I've told a lot of clients to hold off making that decision because they're being built so fast And things are changing so fast, I don't know that I want to ship everything to one team just yet.
0: In the vault, it's almost at the point where they'll pay you to put it in the vault. (laughs) They'll pay you to keep it there, and they'll pay you out if you want to sell it. But if you want your card back, (laughs) good luck. I'm sure they'll give it back, but that's where the fees will kick in. You're going to say, wait a minute. To me, that's the fine print there. And it's their prerogative because it's got to make sense for each of the entities. They'll probably do it a little bit differently everybody's got a vault
1: now better than i would just ensuring that many cards uh their overhead it, and their turn rated at this point early in the vault process is going to be very high so i think at this point they're just trying to gather as many cards as possible like you said because once they're in the vault you know <laughs> we got them baby
0: yeah, uh, there, yeah. the
1: vault is locked <laughs> yeah
0: i don't want to make this a commercial about magpie but they have a really interesting service but The impression I've gotten, I don't think their problem is marketing to the hobby. I think they have a non-hobby service, a service to non-hobbyists who are lost and need somebody to walk them through it. They're helping get cards back into the various ecosystems.
1: One of the neat things about Magpie is over the last year, and before I went to work with them, I've been following them for a while, they've actually found a niche in the hobby working with dealers they've now pivoted almost to a full dealer package where they can manage an entire inventory with real-time prices but the model grows and this is really what i think the secret sauce is nobody's tracking data of in-person sales right now all the data that's tracked online sales so if you do have a collaborative network of different dealers and you're able to get offline pricing it's a huge benefit. And then you can mix in your CRM and POS and still track the collections. Now, the white glove service for the individual collector who wants their collection managed, that can still happen. But a lot of those tools, and you talked about this earlier, are still analytics or ways to push it through all the platforms. And that's starting to resonate within the hobby.
0: Reminding me of back in the day, most sales were not on eBay, obviously Mm -hmm. in the 80s and even in the 90s. And as we were gathering price data, it was all you know, not necessarily B2B or B2C, but it was just two people at a private transaction that we observed or heard about or verified. Mail order, card show, card shop, who knows? Still a lot of transactions back then. Not with as many zeros as now. And there's not the social media. There's just a lot of bragging and flexing (laughs) when something is sold, not just from the big auction houses, but anybody. They're going to shout from the rooftops.
1: Yeah, I remember flexing Todd Van Poppel. Things have definitely changed a couple dollars.
0: It had a couple zeros, except that Todd Van Poppel, he just didn't quite make it, but it looked like he was going to be a great pitcher. It's a fine line between the best and the almosts.
1: I'll still take Brian Taylor in the ring or on the mound. How's that one?
0: <laughs> <laughs> the pre-injury Brian Taylor was pretty amazing. Yeah. And lefty. That helps. Well, that's why
1: I say he got hurt at punching somebody. That's why I said I'll take him in the ring or on the mound.
0: <laughs> I don't want to take him in the ring because <laughs> probably got a wounded wing for that too.
1: If anybody's in the hobby or works in the hobby, I help people in the hobby. So if you're looking to help your business, I help people who do media and communications, do podcasts. That's what I do. Don't be afraid to call me.
0: Are a first hour free, or do you take on a project? You make a proposal? Do you take a percentage? How do you agreeably work with people? A lot of people could use your help. You've got some really interesting, great experience.
1: I am very blessed to have the ability to choose smart, interesting projects. I'm at a place in life where when I decided to change careers and be a happier person, better father, better husband, that part of that deal was I'm going to do what I want to do. Whether or not every company, nobody, even a VC investor can hit 100%, but I'm going to go down with the smartest, best people that I can, work with the most fun products that I can, and see where the chips fall. Just
0: to give equal time to center stage, I was really impressed with John Wee. He's a sensible, really smart guy who doesn't overpromise. I think he's willing to pay his dues. I'm hoping that happens
1: too. I will say John and Catherine are two of the brightest people I've met anywhere near the hobby. You couldn't be more correct. And John, to his credit, texted me today, because my 11-year-old son has been begging him to add Pokemon. I hear that will be coming in the future. So I made my 11-year-old son's day by breaking that news to him.
0: So that's the nature of your consulting. That's my advice. I was (laughs)
1: going to say, this might be a new department for me. I don't do real well with the non-sports.
0: Yeah, I'm sports guard Insights myself. Thanks, Danny. Let's do it again. And uh, thanks, listeners. We'll be back again tomorrow with another episode.